Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. We hope you enjoy this week's message, that it draws you closer to Jesus and helps you become more like Him. We're in Genesis chapter 2. Um, I'm really happy to be back uh, in action, back in town, and fully on board with our series. Again, we took a few weeks off, but we're back now in Genesis. We've been walking through Genesis 1 through 11. And the question we've been asking is, what went wrong? God created this beautiful, perfect, incredible world uh, that we don't live in. (laughs) We live in a world that is broken by sin. And the question we ask when we come to Genesis 1 to 11 is, what happened? What on earth went wrong? And so that's where we are right now. We're in Genesis chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 15 to 25 today. And so you can follow along in the Bible in your pew or on the screen. Um, By the way, if you don't have a personal Bible and you would like one, take the one that's in the pew. It is yours. Um, And I always encourage people to bring a Bible with you, um, but you can always follow along the screen with us too. Uh, Hear the word of the Lord. The Lord God took the man and placed him in the Garden of Eden to work it and watch over it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree of the garden, But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for on the day you eat from it, you will certainly die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper corresponding to him. The Lord God formed out of the ground every wild animal and every bird of the sky and brought each to the man to see what he would call it. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the sky, and to every wild animal. But for the man, no helper was found corresponding to him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to come over the man, and he slept. God took one of his ribs and closed the flesh at that place. Then the Lord God made the rib he had taken from the man into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, This one at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman, for she was taken from man. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife, and they become one flesh. Both the man and his wife were naked, yet felt no shame. This is the word of the Lord. Now I want to remind you, of what we're doing as we look at Genesis. I want to remind you of what's going on when this was written down, because that's incredibly important. What you have to know about the first five books of the Bible, the, what we call the Pentateuch or the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, is that these are the catechism for the people of God, for the children of Israel. A catechism is a teaching of the faith. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a system of teaching to learn about who God is and who we are in relation to God. Many churches have a catechism or they'll have a catechesis class. It's the process of instructing people in the doctrines of their faith so that they can better understand God and themselves and their community. And the first five books of the Bible, we believe, uh, were presented to the people of God during this time that they were wandering in the wilderness. So you've got the people of God. These are the children of Abraham. God calls Abraham out in Genesis chapter 12 and says, I'm going to make you the father of many nations. Abraham has a kid who then has a son whose children then go into Egypt. And they are enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. They go in as a free people. Over time, they become an enslaved people. And then God raises up a guy named Moses, who I'm sure you've heard of, to lead the people out of slavery in Egypt. 
And when he leads them out, they enter into a wilderness. They start moving through the wilderness, and they're going to this place that's called the Promised Land. They're going to the land of their forefathers, the land where Abraham is buried, the land where Isaac and Jacob are buried, the place that was supposed to be theirs from the beginning. That's their goal. They're moving to the Promised Land. Only the people, you know, they're not the most obedient. They're not the most patient. They're not the most kind. They're human beings. They're broken, sinful human beings. And so they do what broken, sinful human beings do when they're wandering in the wilderness. They sin a lot. And they complain a lot. Including Moses. He ain't perfect in all this. He makes some big, big, big mistakes. Mistakes so big that God says, Moses, you're not even going to be allowed to go into the promised land. But because of their sin, God makes them wander for 40 years in the wilderness. Only this isn't wasted time. I think sometimes if you don't know the story and you're not steeped in Scripture, you think that that wandering the 40 years was just kind of like 40 years of boredom. Like, that's God's punishment for your sin, Israel. You're going to wander in the wilderness until the complaining generation dies out, and you're just going to be bored while you're there. And that's not true in the least. You can read about their story in the book of Joshua and and before that as they're wandering through the wilderness. Instead, God is going to take these 40 years to instruct his people on his character and his nature and his expectations for them once they enter into the promised land. God is catechizing his people. He's teaching them. And these first five books of the Bible, these are the contents of that teaching. These are what God is teaching his people as they're wandering so that they can know who he is and they can know who they are in relation to him and they can know how to live for God once they enter the promised land. This is really important because it shapes the way that we understand what's being said here. If you understand that these verses are really about God teaching his people about who he is, who they are, and his expectations for how they live, then we don't get caught up on some of the like scientific details. Right? We don't get caught up on creationism. We don't get caught up on, on some of the things that people argue about that are really not even secondary. They're like way down the line of importance. They don't even really matter in the grand scheme. What matters is what these texts say about who God is, who we are, and how we are to live for Him. Because above all, God is concerned that His people are godly, that His people are like Him, that they are holy in the world. And so God is preparing these people to inhabit this land that He has given them and to make it into a new Eden, a new Garden of Eden, or a new heaven, a place where God reigns and rules and the people live in harmony with one another in what the Bible calls shalom, in peace, in wholeness, in provision. This is why the promised land is described as flowing with milk and honey. It's the place of God's provision for his people. It's the place of peace for them. It's the place that they'll live in community with each other and community with God and know perfect peace. And so God is telling them, As in Eden, so in the promised land. And for those of us who follow Jesus today, we could say, as in heaven, so in the promised land. Or, as in the promised land, so in the kingdom of God. So in the community of people who follow Jesus. The promised land, as it was intended. Not as it actually ended up playing out. Because the promised land ended up being filled with sinful, broken people. 
who did all the same things they did when they were wandering in the wilderness. And so Jesus had to come and bring the promise of a new kingdom, bring the promise of a new people. But as they're wandering in the wilderness, God is setting these people up to recreate the Garden of Eden in the promised land, to recreate his perfect creation, his perfect home, the place that God always intended his people to dwell. And so as they're heading to the promised land, it's kind of their road to heaven. It's their road to shalom. The promised land is going to fulfill their dreams and their desires. That's what they're hoping for. And honestly, that's the intent of God. Unfortunately, these sinful, broken people don't live according to the standard that God had been teaching them in the scriptures. But we're going to read these verses as though they are idealist, as though they're pointing us to God's ideal for humanity. And there are four things, I think, that really nail down how God has made people in these verses. And the very first is that God has made people for freedom. He's made us to be a free people, not to be enslaved to anybody or anything, including himself. We see these in this first verses. The Lord God took the man and placed him in the Garden of Eden to work it and watch over it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for on the day you eat from it, you will certainly die. And you might go, well, God, that's kind of rude. Like, that's kind of cruel. Why in the world would you put this tree in the garden if you didn't want me to eat from it? Like, why is it even there in the first place? That seems kind of dumb, God. You know who we are. You know humans. Like, God knows all, right? God can foresee what's going to happen. God knows the weakness of humanity. And he puts this tree in the garden and is like, hey, guys, all this good stuff around, go crazy, right? Feel free. Eat from it. Any tree of the garden, any fruit that looks good, just pick it. You don't have to worry about poisonous berries. There are none. You don't have to worry about anything making you sick. Just eat whatever looks nice. Except that one. Don't, don't, don't go to that one. Why would he do this? It's because God doesn't want his people to be robots. Choice must exist for freedom to exist. We have to have choice the people of God, the very first people of God, Adam and Eve, Adam first, before Eve is ever there, has to have the choice to obey in order for him to be truly free. If all the conditions exist for him to perfectly obey and never have any choice in the matter, then his love is not really a free love. It's not a choosing of God. And above all, that's what God wants for us. Above all, that's what God knows is best and right for us, for us to choose him. For us to say, God, I want you. I want you more than I want this stuff. I want you more than I want those things that you're calling me away from. God, I want you more than I want the world. I want you more than I want the created things. I want you more than I want money and fame and success and a billion Twitter followers. I want you above all. And that's exactly what God wants for Adam. God wants Adam to want him. And to want him enough for Adam to say, you know what? Nope, God said no to that tree. So I'm going to obey because I love my maker. Because I love my God. I'm going to choose 
obedience to him. And it works for a while. Adam's clearly obedient until Eve comes along. I'm not blaming her. I'm just saying that's a time marker, okay? It's a time marker, not an issue of blame. It works for a while. And so we are made for freedom. We're made for the choice of God. God desires for us to choose him and to continue to choose him over all the things of the world. That's what obedience is in the end. Obedience to God is nothing more than choosing him over the other things of the world. Choosing him above all the other pathways we could take. God has made us for freedom and desires above all that we use our freedom to choose him. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free, but so we can choose to be servants of God. That's the work of God in us. He's made to be free just as you and I are. But he's also made for community. Adam is not free to be only by himself always, or even just to be him and God. God looks down at Adam and says, it's not good for the man to be alone. And so the second point is that we find we are made not only for freedom, but we're made for community. And we're made for human community. It's going to sound mean, but I really hate the phrase that God is all I need or Jesus is all I need because it's not true. It's not biblically true. In the garden, Adam had God. He had perfect communion with God. He had perfect relationship with God, living together with him forever. And if God was all Adam needed, then God would not have looked at Adam and said, it's not good for him to be alone. He needs community. He needs people. People. We need people. Now, some of us need people to different degrees, okay? Some of us are highly introverted and got to get out and get some rest and get away. Some of us are highly extroverted and we need people all the time. But regardless of how you're made and regardless of your posture or your, your personality, you need people. You need community. It is not good for you to be alone and I'm going to say the most controversial thing I'll say all day right now, you cannot be a Christian alone. You cannot. It can't just be me and Jesus. Me and my Bible and God are not enough for me. And God himself said so. To live in individual relationship with God and not to be in relationship with his people is to walk in disobedience. God made us for community. He made us for one another. He looked at Adam and said, this is not good. It's the only thing in all of his creation God looked at and said, that ain't good. But God had a purpose and an intent in making Adam alone at first. God needed Adam to realize it wasn't good for him to be alone. And so God had this crafty idea. I know it's weird to talk of God as crafty, but this is really a witty, like, kind of sneaky idea on God's part. God gets Adam there in the garden, and God's got all the animals that he's created, too. However many species existed at that time. And God sets Adam in the garden and says, okay, Adam, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to parade all these animals before you, and you're going to name them all. And so this is an act first 
of Adam being created in the image of God. He's created to rule over creation. He's created to rule over nature. And so this is the first act where Adam gets to exercise that godlike ruling over the world. But there's a secondary reason that God does this. And it's so that Adam will realize just how alone he really is. God parades these animals in front of Adam so that Adam will look at all them and go, there's, there's nothing like me out there. There's not another me. And I need somebody. I can't do this alone. And so Adam's there. He brings the giraffe, and Adam's like, that's a giraffe. And he brings an elephant, and Adam's like, that's an elephant. And he brings it, whatever the Hebrew word is, for, or whatever the, you know, whatever language he spoke at that point, right? Adam's like, yep, snake, okay, tree, great. Um, you know, and he gets through the end of the list, and Adam's like, there's nobody, there's nobody like me. I'm by myself here. I'm alone in this. And that's when God puts Adam to sleep. Only after Adam has recognized his own individuality, only after he's recognized his own loneliness in this creation, that he needs someone else. He cannot do this alone. And I think this is I'm just speculating here. The Bible doesn't say this, but I imagine that this would be a really humbling experience for Adam. When, I, uh, when my wife and I met, when we first started to get to know each other, um, I had been really sick for a long time. A lot of you know this story. Some of you don't. I had been really sick for a long time. I had undiagnosed type 1 diabetes for like months and months before I met my wife. And so and the economy had collapsed. It was the 2008 financial crash, and my income was dropped to nothing. Um, and when I was meeting with our, the guy who would officiate our wedding like a year and a half after we started dating, or after we met, um, I was meeting with him, and he asked why Beth, and he asked me about the situation. And I was like, honestly, Jonathan, I think like, when I met my wife, I had to be at this place of absolute humility to accept her love, to accept her help, to not be prideful in my own ability to run my life because honestly, I couldn't. I was at rock bottom. I was alone in the world. And even though I had a church community and I had a, I had a terrible relationship with my roommate, I needed to be in a place of desperation to be able to receive humbly the love that my wife had to give and to know exactly how she would fill in the gaps in myself. And honestly, I think that's part of this exercise of Adam naming the animals. It's, it's, this humili it's this humbling experience where Adam goes, I can't rule all this by myself. I can't do all this alone. And there's not another one like me. And Adam has to be humbled before Eve comes along. Not that Adam would have been sinfully pride at all, proud at all. There's no sin in the world at this point. But I think he needs to come to that realization to be able to understand exactly how Eve will fill in the gaps in himself. To understand just how much he needs her partnership to be able to do what God has called him to do. And so we need each other. We need each other to fill in the gaps with each other. We need one another to be able to fulfill God's mission. I can't do it alone and neither can you. By the way, this is why, like, Churches where, like, it's the lead pastor and that's it and they run with it and it's their word and they do the stuff and they do the ministry and the congregation expects them to do it are terrible places. Because <laughs> we are made to partner in this mission and none of us can do it alone. 
We are made to work. My job as the pastor is to equip people to do the work of the ministry, not to do the work of the ministry myself. We are meant to partner together in the mission that God has given us, just as Adam and Eve were. And we need those partnerships. We need one another to be able to do that. And so God creates the woman, puts Adam to sleep, and he pulls out. Our our translation says a rib. I don't like that translation. A lot of translations will say side. The Hebrew word that's used here doesn't really mean rib. In fact, nowhere else in the Bible is it translated as rib except in this one spot. Otherwise, it's translated as side. It's just from the side of, Jesus, of Adam. It's, it's not like one particular part of him that God pulls out. The point is that this is someone who is created out of the same essence, the same stuff as Adam, and brought out from his side. Not from his head, not from his feet, but from his side. This is a partner to him. This is someone who is made of the same stuff in the same way as Adam. Brought out to be an equal partner in the ministry and the mission that God has given them. And so she is brought out to fill in his gaps. And this is where the third point comes in. We are made for freedom. We are made for community. And we are made for complementarity. That's a big word. I know, right? Complementarity. Now, there's, if, you're, if you've been in the church for any amount of time and you've heard these words, complementarian, egalitarian, whatever, they, they, well, this has nothing to do with gender roles. Nothing at all. This has to do with the gaps in who we are. Have you seen Rocky? Anybody, anybody not seen Rocky in this, in this room? Okay, in Rocky, in the movie Rocky, Sylvester Stallone is Rocky, right? And he's having a buddy, he's having a conversation with his friend, I think it was Paulie. He's talking with Paulie as they're in the, the meat locker, he's carving up some meat. And Paulie's asking Rocky about like why he loves Adrian. And Rocky goes, she's got gaps, I got gaps. Together we feel gaps, I don't know. And that's like the wisest thing Rocky ever says, right? Because it's the truth. When you find the person, when you find the community that is right for you, that's the fit for you, it fills in gaps. God knows we've got gaps. God knows every single one of us individually and as a community, we've got gaps. And the ideal for our community, the ideal for our relationships is that together we fill gaps. That the gaps in me meet up with the gaps in you and together... We are fully equipped for the mission God has given us. And this works both on the individual level, as with Rocky and Adrian, and any of us who are married in this room, I hope, or any of us who have close friendships with people who are slightly different than we are, or a lot different than we are. This is how it works in the best of human relationships. You got gaps, I got gaps, together we fill gaps. And then we are equipped to go on the mission that God has given us, to do the thing that God has made us for. That's what complementarity means. Complementarity just means that I am not perfect the way that I am. Complementarity means that there are flaws and faults and there are inabilities that I have where you excel. And I need you to fill those in. And you need me to fill those in for you. In community, in the church, we need each other to fill the gaps as we go on this mission that God has given us. Men, women, children, aged, young, sick, healthy, disabled, fully abled, whatever your situation, we need you. The youngest person in this place has gifts to give to the community. 
the oldest person in this place, has incredible gifts to give to this community. The most able-bodied athletic person has things to give, and the person who has trouble walking or speaking has immeasurable gifts to give. We are all necessary to God's mission, and we all fill in gaps for one another. This is God's ideal for community. And as these Israelites are heading through the wilderness to the promised land, God wants his people to know you guys got gaps and you need each other to fill them out. This is not going to be a kingdom of a whole bunch of little individual mini gods who don't need one another. This is a kingdom of people who can only adequately reflect who I am if they're working together, filling in the gaps that they all have loving and caring for one another, listening with a caring ear to what the other has to say, even when you radically disagree with them, walking alongside one another, never, never measuring someone up at first glance and assuming you know everything about them because you've seen them a couple of times, but really spending time with one another to understand how those gaps can be filled to understand the incredible riches that God has, has enabled, has, has embedded in every single human being made in his image. We can only adequately image God in the world when we are working together and our gaps are being filled by one another. Every single one of us of inestimable value and worth before our God who loves us and says, you are my treasure, you are my daughter, you are my son. And so in marriage, we look for the person who fills our gaps. In community, we look for those people who fill our gaps. God created us for that purpose. And it's modeled in the way that he created human beings. Male and female, I created them. Male and female, God created them. God created us differentiated from one another. We call this dimorphism in the scientific community. It means there are two sexes. We've got men and women. God created us men and women so that we could fill those gaps together. It is mirrored in our biology, the way that we fit together, the way that we become one flesh in the marriage union and in the marriage bed. And it's embedded in our different likes and desires and proclivities and the ways that we're created. It's mirrored in everything about us, this gap-filling, complementary nature of who we are. This has nothing to do with the roles that we play or what you think men should do or women should do or what masculine means or feminine means. Those things are culturally bound. They're, they're, they're unique to our very cultural situation where we are right now. You want an example? In 1918, one of the premier um, lifestyle magazines declared that pink was the most masculine of colors and that baby blue was the most effeminate of colors. 1918. What's masculine and feminine are culturally bound. They'll change over time. This is not about the roles that we play or the culturally bound assumptions about what, a, what masculine and feminine are. This is about God creating in humanity a visual representation, a physical representation in male and female of the ways that we are meant to complement one another, the ways that we're meant to fit together. 
the ways that we can't do this on our own. We need each other, men and women, both in marriage and in relationship in the church and in community. And that's what God is calling his people to. Calling his people to fill in the gaps for one another so they can be whole on the mission that he has given them. And then finally, God has created us for vulnerability. God created us for freedom. God created us for community. God has created us for complementarity to fill in the gaps. And God has created us for vulnerability. That comes here at the very end. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife, and they become one flesh. Both the man and his wife were naked, yet felt no shame. Now, for a culture that these Israelites lived in, very much valued modesty, was not comfortable with nakedness per se, this is a radical statement. The man and his wife were naked and were unashamed. They were naked in front of one another and unashamed. A lot of couples have to work at this for a long time. It's hard to be naked together. I know this is weird, like, you might want to leave right now, but don't, just hold out, it's okay. This is hard for a lot of couples. It's hard for a lot of couples to be physically naked with one another and to be comfortable with that because we're not comfortable with our bodies. We're not comfortable with, with the way that they are. Some of us have, have body image issues and we're concerned about our body. And even before our spouse, those insecurities come out and it's hard to be unclothed. But as hard as that is physically, it can be infinitely more difficult emotionally. It can be infinitely more difficult on a spiritual level, to be vulnerable with one another, to be truly naked before one another, to lay all that I am and all of my insecurities and all my fears and all my doubts and to lay them out before another person and say, this is me. Because when we do that, we open ourselves up to immeasurable hurt. When we really lay everything out there and we say, this is who I am. This is what I am. This is what I'm feeling. This is what I'm thinking. This is what's going through my mind and my body all the time. There's always the danger of rejection. There's always the fear that people are going to look at that mess and go, oh, no. And then we do this weird, weird thing where we assume that we're the only ones with those insecurities. We assume we're the only ones with this mess. And the reality is, the truth is, if we all laid it out there, if we all were vulnerable and we put all of our insecurities, we put everything out there on the floor, every one of us, our piles would look almost the same. We're all facing and fighting with insecurities and struggles, thoughts that we don't want, feelings that we don't want, insecurities that are holding us back from doing stuff, from pursuing relationships. We've all got this mess inside that we're afraid to just lay out there. But within God's community, within the community of God's people, and specifically within the marriages that God has ordained, God is saying, be vulnerable. Be naked. Adam and Eve were naked with one another and unashamed. Everything was out there. Nothing is hidden. It's all there. And that's the vision God has for his community. That's what God wants for his people. A safe community of people who will love through the messy and the ugly and the broken. A community of people who when we put everything out there on the table, we don't have to be afraid of rejection. 
Because when your vulnerability meets my vulnerability and we recognize that all this mess inside may be made up of slightly different things, but it looks really similar, there's no need for us to reject one another, to push one another away. We can be naked and vulnerable with each other, laying it out there, not fearing rejection. In a community of people who are walking with Jesus, who are living as he's called us to, we look at that mess on the floor. We, we look at the stuff that people pull out of their hearts and we link arms with them and we say, let's walk with Jesus together. Let's walk this road of healing together. Because, hey, look, look, here's my mess. And here's my mess. And here's my mess. And we're putting it out there. There's a, there's a, I know I've got a lot of pastor friends. I've got a lot of people in ministry together. And there's, there's always this argument we have about whether pastors can have actual friends in their congregations. We all have this argument. A lot of my pastor friends say, no, you can't. Because it's not possible for a pastor to be truly vulnerable with any member, any member of their congregation, and still hold on to their trust. Because there's stuff in my heart, there's stuff in my life, that I need to hide from you so you'll trust me to lead as pastor. And I listen to my friends say this, and I understand where their heart is, I understand where they're coming from, but I think, man, that just seems so far from the ideal that God's put before us. As the leader of this community, it should be me that's most vulnerable. Will that mean I get hurt? Yes. Will that mean some people reject and leave this church because of that? Yes. Will it mean some people reject community and relationship with me or with us? Yes. But I believe that God is calling us as a community to be able to be out there and to be vulnerable and to lay it all out and say, hey, here's who I am. Maybe not all at once. Maybe not in a way that will scare off and frighten everybody. But over time, as we grow in relationship with each other, as we grow into the bride of Christ together, the community of God's people, God is calling us to radical vulnerability so that we can be a closer-knit community because of it, so we can walk toward healing with Jesus, and so that when a world outside of us that just thinks we're a bunch of arrogant, judgmental jerks comes in here, they go, wait a minute, these people are messed up, but they love Jesus, and they love each other through it all. That should be the witness of our community. Not that we're this buttoned-up, perfect, like, put-together, glorious people who walk a little bit higher than everybody else. We ought to be more real about our junk in this room and in this community than we are anywhere else or with anyone else. It's when we are a vulnerable, safe community where we can walk together through our messed-upness that we will most accurately reflect who Jesus is and we will most honestly pursue relationship with him and healing through him. We are made for freedom, to choose God and to continue choosing him. We are made for community, to be together with one another, to walk this road and to fulfill this mission God's given us as a family. We are made for complementarity, to fill in the gaps in one another so that your gaps fill my gaps. And my gaps fill yours. And we are made for vulnerability. Laying it all out there and loving one another through the mess of our lives. Laying it all out there and walking toward Jesus. We are made for these things 
Not only because God has told us this in Genesis 2, but because that's who Jesus was. That's who Jesus is. Jesus lived in eternal community with God, the triune Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, existing from eternity past and into eternity future. God himself is a community who has created us for community. Jesus is the most free person who has ever lived, not being concerned about what the world thought of him, but following his Father and obeying him above all else, using his freedom to choose obedience to God and to reject the temptation of the devil in the wilderness. Jesus fills our gaps. Jesus comes and sends his Holy Spirit to fill us broken human beings up and empower us, according to John 14, to do the works that Jesus did in a way we cannot without him. And Jesus, naked, hung vulnerable upon a cross on display for everyone to see. God in the flesh, taking all of our sin in the most vulnerable act and moment in human history, God hung naked upon that cross to take your sin and mine. We live this way because Jesus lived this way. Jesus is the man who was created for community, who was in himself community. Jesus is the man created for freedom, who used his freedom to choose God. Jesus is the man who fills our gaps. And Jesus is the man who, in the supreme act of vulnerability, took our sin while hanging naked upon a cross and then rose again to give us new life. We follow in the footsteps of Jesus and we say, as in Eden, so in the promised land, and as in the promised land, so in heaven, and as in heaven, so on the earth right now, and as on the earth, so in this church. Let us be a community of people who pursue freedom, the freedom to choose God and to follow him, who choose community with one another, who choose complementarity, filling the gaps for one another where we need those gaps filled, and who choose vulnerability, laying it all out there in this safe community of people who will walk with us toward healing in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you for calling us to freedom and community to fill the gaps and to be vulnerable with each other. God, thank you for Jesus who not only modeled this for us, but through your Holy Spirit who empowers us to be those people. And I pray, Lord, that as in the promised land and as in heaven, so in Christ's community church. Holy Spirit, empower us and equip us to be your people. Create the community that you most long for in us through the power of the Holy Spirit, by the will of the Father, through the work of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for tuning into the podcast this week. For more information on Christ Community Church in Southeast Denver, visit ChristCommunityDenver.org. 